0: that your spirit will move through her and touch us um, in the areas of our lives that you want to move us on in. Lord, just speak powerfully through her and thank you so much for all that she's doing and the way you're working in her, God. And I just pray that you'll use her mightily amongst us this morning. Amen. 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 Yeah, it's actually fabulous to come and speak again. And mainly I do work in the developing world these days. So uh, I'll head off back to India in the next month and then come back for a few weeks and then I go to East Africa and I'll be in um, Rwanda and Congo and Kenya. I I happened, um, last time I was going to Africa, it was last time at the end of last year, and I was in the airport at Doha waiting and there was a woman there um, who was struggling with her phone. And of course, being the technical genius that I am, I have no clue, I thought I'd give her a hand. So I wandered over and between the two of us though, we got, she got on the internet, and, uh, you know, on Wi-Fi and we were laughing, having a good old time and um, had a great chat and then we get to get on the plane and, uh, we're going, and she says, oh, uh, it turns out that she's the Ugandan ambassador to Kenya. There you go, not bad, was it? So her and I've now become great friends i'm going to go and stay with her in Kenya as well, and uh, we're going to do a women 's conference together, and I just kind of end up thinking how God is incredible, isn't he? how he brings these connections and and it tends to happen all across the world, and I am absolutely loving what I get to do every single day um, and it's good to feel like that, isn't it? It's great to feel like that so I also am part of a local just my local church community, which is just down the road from where I live, so that's Really helpful these days because when I am home, I can just duck down there and be part of um, a local church and you know, believe in the local church what it's what we're supposed to do to gather in people, to care for people, to encourage us and maybe challenge us to become a bit more like Christ. Because without that, any programs in the world are never going to change the world, they're not. Because ultimately, people connect with people. And that's how they discover what God is like. You know, I've had a great... Uh, Tim and Lyndall, you know, becoming grandparents has kind of been my joy as well over the last couple of months. Can I... You got a, got a picture there? Come on, Adam. He's the cutest little baby. Well, second cutest. Joint cutest, Lyndall and Tim, OK? Um, can you get him up? No, we can't. OK, his name is Oscar. And he is gorgeous. He's two months old now. And he's huge. My my sons they just had their first baby and he is a little man mountain. I look at these other little babies and I'm like, what have I got here? He's in he's in the over the hundredth percentile on everything, head size, length, body size, and I'm like look at me, what's going on? So I've got this gorgeous grandson and he smiles his way through life and um, I'm loving that. I'm loving that. Oh, they're still are you still working on it? But what we're talking about today is not him. Of course, I'd love to. I could spend the whole half an hour giving you a little chat about Oscar, but maybe it wouldn't be that helpful for our spiritual growth. Um, but I, there's this thought that the scripture, what you guys are actually talking about, is this: what really counts? We we really should have that as a question. We really should just put that as a full-on question mark, because there's an assumption that we all know, or that we're all living according to what we know. I don't think that's true. What really counts? Do you ask yourself that every time you're making a decision? What really counts, or do we just have an assumption that whatever we kind of want to do, whatever opportunities open up, somehow they're what really counts? There's a scripture that's going to lead this series that um, I was here, that you know that um, Stephen told me. So let's read this key scripture because it comes from Philippians three, and if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know this scripture. terrible, my eyesight is really going on me. That comes from God on the base of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And it says, not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do forgetting what is behind and straining to what is ahead I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus I press on to attain the goal How many times have we heard that scripture Hundreds who's got who's who's had the magnet up on their fridge you know or, or the you know sign up in your in your house somewhere it says I'm pressing on to attain the goal and here's the question, what is the goal? What is the goal? I think there's an assumption, especially in Christian circles, that we don't need to talk about what the goal is because it's kind of understood. It's kind of an assumed thing. Um, to become more like Christ, we all say these... I can say these little things so easily, and I'm sure you all can too. We can kind of... Like, they just roll off the tongue. Or well, What is it? Um, it's to become more like Jesus. Um, oh, it's to... I don't know, give up our life. We 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 come up with things very simply, in a simplistic way, but I'm asking you the question, if I actually say to you, what is the goal? What is the goal that you live for? What is the goal that guides your decision making? What is the goal that you actually say, every decision I make is in this is in perspective of where am I heading? You know, other, over the weeks, other people are going to talk about this idea about we, us, we sometimes need to change direction. We need to shift to make sure we're on the right path. We want, to, we want to better understand that we're making the right decisions and not just morally right decisions, not just morally right, not just ethically right, but actually uniquely, personally correct for where we're being called to go, what we've been called for in our life. And I think that if it actually has to start with, you better know where X is. X being the destination. Because if we actually don't know where we're heading, then I don't really know what's informing that decision-making. Um, I heard a song today, actually, on the radio up here. I was listening to this bit of this radio, and they came up that song, Nowhere Man. Who remembers that song? If you don't remember it, don't worry about it. Another generation, OK? But it was a, it was a Beatles song called Mr Nowhere Man, you know? Does he know where he's going? And then it says, I love that line, but isn't he just a bit like you and me? <laughs> we like to talk about the nowhere man as if he's someone else. And yet too often, I'm the nowhere man. I don't know where the heck I'm going and I've got to get back and remind myself of the ultimate destination. Um, there's a, game, a new game show out called Pointless. Have you seen it? It's actually an English one. They're, to, they're doing a variation for the Australian market. It's just starting. But I remember watching Pointless for the first time about... I don't know, it was probably about 18 months ago, and I could not get the game. I could not understand the game. I'm watching this game and I'm thinking, this game makes no sense because the goal of pointless is when they ask you a question, you have to come up with the right answer, but an answer that no one else has got, so it scores zero. And at the end of every round, when couples get knocked out, and you've got start off with four couples, and it becomes three, then two, then one, the team who has scored the least points wins. That does not sound right, does it? And so you, I found my, I found my head watching it. I just ha- kept having this mental tilt, like, no, 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 you can't score zero and win. You have to score hundred and win. You know what I mean, don't you? Like that's like a bit of an oxymoron quiz game but you know what I think it's like X in the Christian world I think the point that we're trying to get to is completely counter what culture says and what history and experience has told us and that is this culture would suggest and too often we agree with it that the objective of life is to have more do you not agree the objective of life is to have more. More than we had yesterday, and perhaps more than anyone else has got too, it wouldn't be too bad. And I'm talking about more money, more influence, more status, more power. The objective is more. When they asked one of those, you know, famous guys in America who was incredibly rich what he wanted, you know, what would be enough, he said, just one more dollar. Because I would suggest that culture does say that that's what we're after, we're after more. You know, one of the big ambitions of of current culture when they asked a group of young people about what would they see as being um, the epitome, success of life, they said, Fame. Fame. I'm having a ringing here. You can you hear it? Yeah. yeah. Can you just check on that? Because the idea is that that is what culture is saying, but I can tell you that's not what Jesus is saying. If we don't get this destination X really clear, we're going to be chasing after all the wrong things, leading us to make all the wrong decisions. But, you know, too often this actually does invade Christian thinking. This idea of more invades Christian thinking. And we start to think of more people and more salvations and more influence and more, more, you know, more of us. Somehow even being the objective of church life. And I wonder if we're not doing exactly what it says in Scripture when it says do not... Let the world squeeze you into its mould, squeeze you into its thinking. Because here's Jesus, who's giving us a completely different way. The God way is not the way of more. The God way is the way of less. I was uh, talking to a um, I was had a woman recently who gave funds to a particular. Uh, project that I'm involved in overseas, and this has only happened in the last week, and she wrote me an email last week, because she had given some money, and she gave quite a good amount of money, a large amount, largest amount of money, but she wrote to me, and she said, oh, you know, I gave this money, and I rang up to see if the money was in the account with the people who issue the receipt, and she said, you know, I felt a bit disappointed. She said, I didn't, they didn't seem very excited about the amount that I'd given, And they didn't thank me very much. And she said, not that I'm worried about that, but she said, I think they're taking me for granted. And I just stopped in my tracks because she was a lady I knew from a church. And I just had to think to myself, what on earth is going on in us? What on earth have we not lost X? when we reflect on a giving amount and we feel that we haven't had enough appreciation and enough value. I was kind of stunned and I, I said to her, you know what, number one, they would have appreciated it but number two, is your giving any bigger than the $100 given by someone who that was a bit of a struggle for them and number three, if you don't really worry about it then why are you writing me this email? I mean, totally won't give it to me again, I assume that. But <laughs> at the end of the day, it's not my objective. It's not vaguely my objective. Life is, I love the scripture, one of my favourite scriptures of Proverbs is this idea that life winds upwards. That life winds upwards for the rest of your life. I think the tragedy of thinking that life winds upwards means that I will have more. Because for me, that's not vaguely the indicator. You know, in fact, I would suggest that what Jesus' culture says is, you, know, you want to know what X is? You know what the destination is? It's the cross. Do you know what the destination is? Losing our life. Giving our life away. Dying. Dying to self. That's ultimately the destination. I mean, that doesn't sound so grabbing, does it, when I'm saying it here? You think to yourself, oh my gosh, can she just leave this one alone? Because everything else would suggest, especially the culture of the the last maybe 20 years, has been the idea of, no, you can have more. You can have more as a Christian. the whole objective of even becoming a Christian is so we can find out ways to have more. And I'm not anti-stuff at all. But I don't even vaguely measure the fullness of life by what I have or what I am or what other people think of me. And the wonder, the wonder of six years ago walking away from a full-time job and I'm just saying this for me, walking away from a full-time job and walking into this unknown of what the heck am I now going to do and I have no title and no status, it's just been the gift, the ultimate gift of not ever letting X be determined by anything other than what I believe he's calling me to. It looks so like, unlike culture, and yet it's exactly what Jesus is asking of us. The way of the cross is this. Just put that scripture up, you guys. And it says this. It's in Mark, and it's Jesus is talking. To the disciples in anticipating his current death he says he begins to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law that he must be killed and after three days rise again and he speaks plainly about this that life is going to be hard and life is going to be leading to the cross and what, what does Peter do? Peter says takes him aside he begins to rebuke Jesus he says not on your life you're not going to die that's not the way of the cross And then it says, Jesus calls the crowd along with the disciples. He says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Because what good is it if for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation? The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. The disciples hated the fact that Jesus was saying that my job is to die. And they wanted to make it a lot better than that. But guess what? Jesus was saying, not only is his job to die, but so is ours. Die to self. You won't lose. That's the twist. The twist is, is when you think you've lost everything, you actually found what you were looking for. So many times I thought, oh man, it looks like I'm losing everything, God. looks like I'm losing everything. And now I think, I've just gained the whole world. You know, the way of the cross looks like humility and servanthood, looks like turning the other cheek, it looks like... It looks like not judging other people because of their sexuality, because of their status, because of their brokenness, because of their difference to us. Gosh, it's not easy to do. It looks like forgiveness. It looks like sharing our resources. It looks like taking the log out of my own eye before I worry about the speck in someone else's. It looks like coming second and not thinking that's a bad thing. It looks like people thinking you're weak, when underneath it all, you think, "I'm not weak, I'm strong." And you know, if we truly lived and believed, and if we truly lived this out, can you imagine our potency in our communities? And who would be our heroes? Who would be our heroes? Maybe not the Kardashians? Boy, crazy stuff, that. But even us, we herald people. I've been hearing some say to me the other day about the person they would listen to because they have this huge church and these 10 campuses and I just thought, I don't care. Not that I don't think it's wonderful for them and not that I'm vaguely judgmental of them, but I don't know them. And if I don't know them, then I'm actually not going to follow after Their lifestyle when I don't even know what it is. You know, I look at someone like Henry Nguyen and throw up Henry's picture here. Oh, golly, what an amazing man. I look at him and I think he had all the trappings of life, just like Paul, who wrote the book of Philippians that we're talking about. He was intelligent, he was influential. He'd been the pastor of a church, he was a Catholic priest, he was a priest, he wrote, he was an author, he was an author and he wrote 39 books. Oh my gosh, we call ourselves an author when we've kind of got one little essay out there somewhere. He wrote 39 books on spirituality. He was a teacher at Notre Dame. He ran the Divinity Schools or Head Lecturer at Yale and Harvard. He ran the most popular summer course in all of Harvard's history. He was a renowned speaker. Everyone wanted to speak all around the world. And he left everything to go and work at one of the uh, centres, Core of Larch which is actually serving people with disabilities. And he moved in there. And his last, I think, five or six years were spent there. And he died there. And you know what he said? When someone said, how did you leave this prominent life and come and serve in this centre with people with disabilities? And he said, all of my life was preparing me for this. Not that I retired and I'm settling down here. He said, all of my life was preparing me for this. That looks like X to me. The God factor of X. The God destination. Losing your whole life knowing that you're going to find it. I'd love to think it was my reflection if that happened to me. I don't know because I'm not that good at it yet. But gosh, I want to be. You know Jesus often used some really unusual customs to teach us things. Have you noticed that? I love Jesus' life because he would often do these really nutty things, like, you know, bending down and making mud in the ground and putting it into someone's eyes, and then suddenly he obviously didn't need to do that. It really wasn't something in the mud, was it? But Jesus just used these ways to teach us stuff. I think he was trying to make us think. I think he was leaving behind stories to make us think. Even water baptism. It's all right if you understand, if you live in the church, but if you don't live in the church and you're kind of looking on, you're seeing people go to a beach and be dunked and come up and say hallelujah, would you not think that was weird? I happen to have been around quite a few non-Christian people in my whole life and I remember them laughing their heads off when they see things that Christians do, including my husband. First time he came to church, he thought it was completely wacky. Because when you're an insider and you understand these customs, it, they make sense. But if you don't, and I think Jesus kind of did it, knowing completely what he was doing. One of the ones that always makes me kind of smile is foot washing. Uh, this is—I'm going to really get crazy, get crazy by this. I think I'll take a handheld. Can everyone else hear that leading, feeding back? Yeah, it's, hard, it's difficult. Um, he, uh, I love the—I love the fact that Jesus did something like foot washing. Now. I don't see much foot washing in the church, do you? We don't kind of all come here and let's greet each other with a good foot wash. Like it, because foot washing is ultimately quite weird. Like I don't even like people really washing my feet. Do you? Does anyone else like it? I, I, um, I find it really quite strange because when I go away overseas, sometimes you go in to um, have, your, you know, have like a pedicure done or something and I always want to wash my feet before I get there because I don't want them to find my feet dirty. You know what I mean, and then it's it just it's one of the, it also makes me really ticklish, so I kind of feel like I'm giggling and laughing as they're washing your feet, which is a little bit more weird, but in fact, my dad though was this gorgeous man because he used to love rubbing all of our feet, and i I was so privileged that he was that kind of man, you know, so we would come in as kids and he's this he was this really big, huge character, you yeah, bigger than life character, but when we would come home, you know. Dad would get us to sit on the couch, lie on the couch and put our feet up onto his lap and he'd rub our feet and just expression of incredible love and incredible service, I think, when I look back on it now. But, you know, when, I'm, when someone's washing my feet, I often have this desire to make them, especially if they're kneeling down, come and sit up here next to me. Do you feel like that? Like, I don't want you down there. I just want you up here next to me. Because we feel uncomfortable even with the way that that feels. Our response is often to want to lift people up. But you know, Jesus, boy, Jesus goes to the Last Supper and he knows this is going to be the last time he has meal with these disciples. And the men have come in from dusty roads and they're just wearing sandals so their feet are dirty and they haven't had a chance to nip home and give them a sprucing. Jesus says, "Um, oh, well, let me sit down here and I'm going to wash your feet. That's just, that, that, that would be so uncomfortable, wouldn't it? And, the, and, and you know what? The, um, the disciples felt it was really uncomfortable too. Let's just read John 13. It says this. It was just before the Passover festival. And Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world. He knows he's going to die and he's going to go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Do you not love that? Hear that. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is Jesus loving the disciples to the end. And the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God, he's returning to God. He knew who he was. He knew who he was. And so he got up from the meal and he took off his outer clothing, his cloak, And he wraps a towel around his waist and he pours water into a basin and he kneels down and he begins to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter who says to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replies, you do not realise now what I am doing. But later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answers, unless I wash you, You have no part with me. And then Lord, Simon Peter says, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And not only does Jesus imply that this is how we're to live, not only does he imply it, he says, when he had finished washing his feet, he put on his clothes and he returns to his place and he says to his disciples, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. I just both cringe. And celebrate what Jesus is asking of us. Because he's saying, are you going to wash each other's feet? You know, foot washing is actually a metaphor. Right? It's, a, it's an action, but it's also a metaphor what Jesus was telling them. And the first thing it's a metaphor for what Jesus did was it's a mes- mes- metaphor for servanthood. It's a metaphor for saying, you know what you and I are called to do? Do you know what X is? Laying down your life and serving each other. Washing other people's feet is what you're called to do. You know, it looks like helping other people in need. It looks like using our gifts. That's what it looks like. It looks like helping people in the church and outside the church. It looks like listening to people with rapt attention when you're busy. It looks like stopping and saying, you matter a great deal. I'm just going to sit here at your feet right now and just wash them. It looks like encouragement. It looks like speaking life. And sometimes it looks like correcting each other. You know, even before you hear this, I, I know that we all know this is true because this is actually, this is actually almost a human understanding. But when you serve other people, there's this incredible joy that you get. You know that, don't you? You know the most famous, um, most popular advertisement in the world is this advertisement. Just watch it. จะได้อะไรจะไม่ได้อะไรเลยไม่ได้รวยขึ้นไม่ได้ออกทีวีไม่มีใครรู้จักมันได้มีชื่อเสียงที่มากขึ้นสิ่งที่เข้าได้คือในสิ่งที่เงินซื้อไม่ได้ใดโลกที่สวยงามกว่าเดิมในชีวิตคุณอะไรคือสิ่งที่คุณต้องการมากที่สุดซื้อ It's great, isn't it? (laughs) Ultimately, you're after life insurance, weren't you? But uh, it's the most popular ad in the world, history, and you know why? It's because it touches into what we all ultimately know to be true. That when we share what we've got and who we are, that there's beauty and we long for that kind of beauty. But I reckon that's the human experience. I think that the foot washing went one step further. I think what Jesus did was he bent his knee and he sat at their feet. And I think in that, what God was demonstrating, this humility of heart that goes with serving. Like we can share what we have, but we can do it from a position of superiority. We can bestow something on people as if, yes, I will give this to you. But I think what Jesus was saying when foot washing is, no, no, you bend your knee. You sit at people's feet. That's what God looks like. That's actually the kind of service that God gives. And I actually even think that Jesus was saying something else even further, that when you bend your knee and you sit at people's feet, that's when you actually encounter God yourself. Because that's where he is found. You know when when Jesus says, you know, if you unless you let me do this, you'll have I can have no part in you. You'll have no part in me. It's like no, no. When we allow God to serve us like that, and we serve others like that, we actually encounter God for ourselves. We are the one who are changed. I'm the one who gets changed. I actually know that's incredibly true. It's see, service is more than doing good. It's more than volunteering. It's more than just oh well, I'll help out. And I'll feel good about it. It's actually like, I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to humble everything I am because I know who I am. I am a child of the one high God. And when I bow my knee, it's just what he would do. And he's saying, come on, just do it. Just do it like I have done. You know, the simplest acts of service become so remarkable because I think we experience God in them. I think the extra thing that, that Jesus said here is that not only did Jesus serve the disciples, he actually served Judas, his enemy, the perceived enemy, the one who had already betrayed him, had arrived at that meal, he had already betrayed Jesus and he, Jesus knew it. I just can't even begin to imagine that Jesus actually sat down there and washed his feet. Serve our enemies. Not just this idea about, yeah, pray for them because then you're going to heap coals on their head, which I've heard us say a few times. Serve our enemies because that's what Jesus did. He bent his knees and he washed his feet. The evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of, Iscari, of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus, and Jesus washed his feet. I look at these, this example and I think, do we think what really counts is not about having more but about being less? Unless a seed falls into the ground and dies. It doesn't come back to life. Or do we just want to be a tree planted by the river, <laughs> flourishing? Oh, it's another story that I actually really love in the Bible. And it's the story of the Good Samaritan. And it resonates in me because it's not about just the good feelings, which that one gives me. It resonates on this such a deeper level that says, can you live like this, Kelly. Could you possibly live like this? And I'd love us to watch a video of that too, which runs for a couple of minutes. And again, it's few words are ever spoken, but there's something in it that's actually saying could we actually serve people like this? Let's run that video. that story I love that story because I think it says it so clearly you know the religious leaders of the day walked by and they didn't walk by just because they were fearful I don't believe I think they also walked by because they just didn't want to bend their knee and bathe someone and then carry them and yet that's what Jesus would have done so clearly what he would have done In the last week my mother in law's been incredibly unwell. She's been in ICU and we almost lost her. But you know, she's one of those women who potently understood the example. She understood the life of laying down your own life. She actually has lived it so incredibly in front of me that even as a young, when she was a very young Christian, she had come from a history of domestic violence where her husband had beaten her badly and she had fled the house in the middle of the night with her children and they'd lived in a caravan park in Midland and had lived, my husband had lived in the back of the ute with a tarpaulin pulled over him through much of that period. And My mother-in-law went back to study and studied all day and worked at night washing dishes to become a teacher. And uh, when I was early married, her husband, her ex-husband, he had married again and his wife, he was living down in Mandurin, and his wife became ill, gravely ill, was dying in hospital. So what did she gets me to do? Her and I go along to be with her. And we went along and sat with her so she wasn't going to be alone in dying because Linda said no one should die alone. And then when the husband then was left alone, she said, oh, well, we better go to Mandra and help him pack up his stuff and bring him up to Perth and find somewhere to live and introduce him to his grandchildren. I'm like, That's absurd absolutely absurd and that's who we're called to be not just those who serve but those who kneel bow our knee and serve even our enemies because it's exactly what Jesus did Philippians 3 forgetting what is behind straining towards what is ahead I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heaven in Christ Jesus And here's the prize. Lose our life. And only he can bring it back to us. If we want to follow this through, follow God and his direction for our lives, then we need to know where he's ultimately leading us and he is leading us to the cross. Where we lay down our lives for the Christ way and the service of the world. In our culture, servanthood and humility is often made a negative experience or a lesser experience. It's a result of being a little bit less. But that's not the way it is in Scripture. Jesus didn't need to be made any less. I love this fact that wholehearted service is the opportunity to let go of the trappings of our humanity, our wealth, our image, our status. It's the opportunity to think of ourselves as slaves to Christ, knowing that we can stay on bended knee and still be worth so very much. We can be worth so much. We're not worth less. Philippians two one to four says it best when Paul says, "If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if His love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you have, if you care, I'd like to think that's me. Then do me a favor: agree with each other, love each other, be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front." Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be so obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. That looks like foot-washing to me. May we do it willingly and humbly and regularly. And may we experience the warmth of God's presence and in return feel inspired and encouraged to whisper again those words. Here I am, Lord. Lord. Send me. Here I am, Lord. Send me. As this, as this theme goes on, may we remember the North Point. It's not about having more. It's about being a little bit less. And in due season, He is the great lover of us. We will never be disappointed. Amen. I let's close our eyes. God, help us. Help us to see this truth. Burn it within us that we may live this truth. That all the world may know that you are the great lover of us and our world. I pray right now, God, Calamity Church of Christ, becomes a beacon, not for brilliance, but for humility. Not with being so much, but being prepared to be little. But people know that they can come as broken as they am and fit right in. Because that's what we all are. And even as you sit there today, I just pray. I actually ask you to make a decision within yourself. Say, God, you know what? I choose being less, that you may be more in me. And every decision I make, I ask that you let me run it through the filter of, is this serving others? Is this serving humanity? Because we know that's what you've called us to. In Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Thanks Kelly for that.